Want the reward? Do the damn work. Challenge yourself. Inspire change. Choice, not luck. What's happening, everybody? Todd Crandall from Racing for Recovery with another Ignite Euphoria podcast, and this one is going to be a good one. I have legendary photographer Mark Weiss with me today. Before we get into it, if you don't know who Mark is by looking at him, he is this guy that did this book. Um, you've probably seen a ton of his work if you're a... 80s rock and roll fan like myself. So we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about some good stories and um, get into some probably some personal stuff too. So Mark, glad you're here, man. It's an honor. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, likewise. It's going to be cool. Um, let's do this. I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you to start with. And we have a slogan here called, With Sobriety, Anything is Possible. And your story to me is another example of that, even leaving the sobriety thing out, like what you did to initially get started. Tell people how you became who you became. How did it all start? Uh, well, I always tell my kids and anyone really that, that I have their ear on is if you don't go, you don't know. Uh, I strongly believe in that. If there's an opportunity, you go grab it, whether it's selling Girl Scout cookies or, uh, you know, having a lemonade stand or mowing lawns, in, like in my case. So I was 12 years old. We just moved into a new development, so everything was new. And people were moving in, and I was meeting friends. And, you know, I was kind of a shy kid. But, uh, you know, one of the things I did is uh, mow lawns. And I did it for $5 a pop, and I had a steady stream of customers. And I always looked for another one. So people were moving in, and then there was this one guy that used to mow his lawn all the time, or he did. And one month, I mean, he was on vacation or something, it was really long. So I knocked on his door, and I said, uh, do you uh, need your lawn mowed? And he's like, no, kid, I do it myself. And I said, well, it doesn't look that way. And he looked at me like a little smile, a smirk, and he said, stay here. And I waited for about five minutes and I didn't know what he was going to do, you know. So he comes back with this camera, this Bell & Howell Canon camera. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you mow my lawn with, for the season, I'll give you this camera. And I looked at it and I'm like, all right, I can probably sell that for a couple hundred bucks at the pawn shop, you know. Probably be what I would have got if I mowed his lawn for the season. And I did the, I, you know, did it. He gave me the camera and I didn't go to the pawn shop. I just put it on my shelf and it just stayed there. And then I started you know, school, I think it was in eighth grade <laughs> and uh, just left it there. And then I finally, there was a dark room in my school, uh, uh, Carl Sandburg in, in Old Bridge, New Jersey. And I just walked into it, uh, to this class. I couldn't get in the class, it was already taken, but I went in there, it was the end of the, end of the school season. And I said, I got this camera. and. I'd love to try to learn how to do something with it. He says, well, come on in in the summer. I have a summer program if you want to, you know, I'll show you how to develop film. And it was just so cool. It had this, you know, round, anyone that doesn't know what a darkroom looks like, which in today's world, unless you're, you know, 45 and older, uh, it's basically a room where you magic occurs. And you, there's these trays of different chemicals 
and it looks like water and some of it has a little bit of a pungent smell to it uh, and uh, you put this piece of paper where it's exposed by a, an enlarger and this blank piece of paper comes to life it, the picture appears so to me that was kind of like magic you know you're 12 years old and here you're putting this piece of paper in that you took a picture of a week or two ago and and so that excited me and then the then the, the clock was clicking you know it had this nice cool glow-in-the-dark clock which I still have hanging in my office and uh, and the dark room had a cylinder which reminded me of like Star Trek I was a big Star Trek fan with you know Captain Kirk and all that and they had you know where you, the transporter room where they kind of disappeared and so in this case it's this, this black cylinder uh, uh, door that basically you go in it so light doesn't come in and it spins around and then you go into the other side of this magical room with red lights coming out and you know all this you know space stuff and this is when the um uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon so I was like 68 1968 and so I was into space too so it all kind of it was exciting to me and that was pretty much it until I uh, uh, I, I basically did that for a year shooting my dog and my brother uh, in his motorcycle racing he had a little garage band and and I did, you know, parties and, you know, just family stuff. So I did that until I kind of got bored of it. And I just put the camera down and was sitting on there until my first concert. Which was? It was, uh, I Sly in the Family Stone, I think was the first concert. <laughs> but uh, the one that really had a, and that was 1974. The, and then it was Elton John. Um, no, no, before Elton John, it was Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young in 1974, and it was the day that Nixon resigned. Uh, and I remember David Crosby, I think it was David, that, that made the announcement, and there was like 100,000 people. It was Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, and it just felt like that Woodstockian feel, you know, that I was always envious of, you know, you know, set eight, nine years prior or ten years prior. Uh, and I always, you know, you, you smelt the pot and the partying and all that. And I was like 14 at the time. My brother uh, brought me with his friends. And uh, and that's really where, where I got the, you know, the start from. So then let's talk talk about your, obvious, your love for music. You know, when you mentioned Crosby, Stills and Nash, that's, I grew up, my parents were playing that when I was a kid you know you're a little bit older than me but all these things I'm like I remember it as a kid so then where you know you're talking about New Jersey and you've talked about shooting at Madison Square Garden the Philadelphia Spectrum all these iconic buildings what was the first show that you you know you snuck your camera and took some pictures and, and talk about how this really started to take off right so that Crosby Stills National Young concert I had a, a friend's my my parents best friend's son named Kenny Reff was a photographer and he used to sneak his camera in and take pictures and he used to have them in his room. So whenever I went over there, he was a, a little older than me, not much, but uh, I used to see him with pictures. So he, I saw him at that concert and I saw him, I, he, we just happened to bump into each other and he, I said, where are you going? He, he had a camera, he had a couple of girls with him and he said, I'm going to the front of the stage and take some pictures. I said, oh, wow. And I watched him go into, you know, all the way there and I couldn't see him anymore. And and then like a couple months later when I went to, uh, my parents took me over to their house 
and they uh he showed me the pictures and i was like wow you had him hanging up and all everything so i was like wow that that's pretty cool and then I, that's when i I said I I kind of want to do that, you know. I saw the girls, I saw the the what he, the whole thing, you know, and then um and then on Thanksgiving uh, the following year, nineteen it was I think it was nineteen seventy four, he um, Elton John was playing the Garden, and Thanksgiving Elton John was playing, and me and my friend Frank Anzis uh, snuck out of uh, or we finished our Thanksgiving and we hopped on the train and ended up on the train to to go to see. Elton John in the Madison Square Garden. I stuck my camera in for the first time. So this is, we just got connected in February. We met out at Atlantic City for the, the Motley Crue Def Leppard show. And, um, and first of all, I want to go back to something you talked about, just taking that chance. So I've had, I've seen your pictures ever since I've, I don't know, I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. So I knew the picture, but didn't know the face with it. And then a few years ago, I started buying prints of all your iconic photos and hanging them up here at Racing for Recovery in my house. And one day I was just sitting at home and I was looking at your website and you know I had your book and I'm like, I'm gonna take a shot and just contact this guy and see if he'd ever be interested in coming out and shooting everything that goes on here. And it's that same mentality of I want something, I'm gonna go get it. And here you are sitting here. So once again, that slogan, with sobriety, anything is possible. That's what it means to me. So I want to get back to the story about the KISS, the KISS event that really changed, in my opinion, this is where it took off for you. Um, so talk about that. You know, you're taking pictures of them at the garden. You're getting some people that are interested. Go ahead and explain to everybody that. All right. So fast forward to seven, a couple of years is any concert that was around, I would sneak my camera in, pay the security guard off and, and just dismantle my camera and hide him in my clothes and and then it would, you know jump over the barricade to get in the first 10 rows I would dismantle the chairs at the garden so I'd have a little spot and the ushers couldn't kick me out so I had a whole thing going on and a whole uh, you know strategy and and it worked so I started when, when I first started getting some good photos of like Aerosmith Peter Frampton I brought them to my school to show everyone you know because at that point it wasn't like today there's like a million bands Back then, there was like, you know, a handful of bands that the radios promoted, and it's like, you know, everyone knew who Frampton was. Everyone was going to the Frampton show. Everyone was going to the Emerson Lake and Palmer show. Whoever was big at the time, and everyone wore the T-shirt. So I, you know, most of the time you see people on the train and you go to school, and I bought the pictures, and they were like, "Wow, that's cool." You know, can we buy one? And I said, oh, "Okay." So I started selling for a buck a piece out of my high school locker. My teachers let me, and uh, I had signs up and everything, homeroom, go to room 108 and the whole deal. And so I did that, and then I took it to the next level by going to the concert. So when uh, Kiss would play for like, uh, you know, three or four days, I would go the first day, stay up all night, sell them in front of the, send them out of my high school locker the next day, and then also hop on a train and sell them in front of the Madison Square Garden with my friends and just, you know, like the, the shirt sellers, you know. Uh, we knew it wasn't legal, but, you know, because they used to get chased by the cops here and there. But it was fun. It was exciting. And, and I was making some money basically to pay for film. Because back then, you had to buy film. It's not you can take a thousand photos on your your digital camera. You'd have to, like, buy it. And it was like, you know, 40 bucks for processing and the whole deal. It was a lot of money. So I made money that way to, to buy enough film for the next concert. 
And uh, so that's what I did for a couple years. And at, at the Kiss show, uh, they were like, you know, you know, trying to get all the bootleggers and you know, they put the word out. Uh, if the band puts the word out to the cops, we want them off the street, then they clear the streets. And Kiss was one of them. They were very uh, interested in making money for themselves and not for some kid in New Jersey. You know? <laughs> so, Gene Simmons at its finest, right? right yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, so I got arrested. My, my friend took off one way. I went the other way and they, they went after me. And, and I went to jail overnight with all the shirt sellers. They were all sticking their shirts in their, their, in their shirts and trying to hide them. And I had these photos and I stuck them in my shirt, you know, like the cops weren't going to find them when I got, you know, when I got out of the paddy wagon, you know, and then, uh, you know, they did what they had to do. And, and, they and you're said, 17. Sorry, Mark. How yeah, old are you? Yeah, okay. 17. Yeah, 17. All right. And then. Uh, they said, if if you want them back, you have to appear before the judge and this and that. I said, just hold on to them. You know, they let me go. It was like a slap on the wrist for me. You know, they saw I was 17. It's like, you know, <laughs> give this guy a break, you know. Right. So, uh, so that was kind of it. I still did it here and there. Uh, but uh, I was, uh, oh, so the next day I went to Circus Magazine. Yep. I went home and I was looking at the magazine. I was I was looking. At it. I said, "I wonder where they're located." And I just saw the, I just saw the, um, the address was in New York City, and uh, so I just hopped on the tr same train I went to to the Madison Square Garden, and hopped on a subway and and went to Circus Magazine. And I just said, I told them what happened, and the secretary took a liking to me, this girl Marianne, and uh, she said, uh, "Well, wait." I'll have uh, the art director. His name was Al Rudolph. Uh, see you. He'll said he'll see you, but you got to wait till the you know you might have to wait a while. I said all right, I'll wait till they kick me out. You know, and so pretty much like before they left for the day, they said okay, send in the kid. And I showed him my you know I didn't have much of a portfolio. It was just a bunch of photos and some sort of a, a organized book. And uh, he's like, I like what you're doing. I see what you're doing and. And uh, let me call Jerry in, and Jerry's the owner of uh, Circus Magazine, Jerry Rothberg. And I was like, wow, I just remember seeing his name in the credits, like he owned, who's the guy, you know, who started it. And uh, he was just very nice and says, you know, keep up the good work and let us come back when you think you have something. And then the, I stayed in touch with the secretary, and then she called me up. She goes, and I was like, I'm never going to be good enough to, you know, I thought I was good enough already, but they wanted me to shoot on different film because they wanted flash and crisp, and I was shooting available light because you wanted the ambiance of the show. But they wanted really crisp flash photos, and I wasn't really into that. But I was like, you know, I guess I got to do that if yeah. I want to. And I really didn't do it um, until Aerosmith played uh, giant stadium it was an outdoor concert so I didn't have to use a flash it was just available light and I could shoot this film that they wanted called Kodachrome 64 that was the sharpest because they wanted it to be like big for the centerfold and uh, so I shot a bunch of film she called me up and said hey do you have any pictures of Aerosmith because no one's really got any pictures because uh, they weren't letting him shoot or whatever and do you have any I said yeah I just shot them she said bring them over I brought them over, I dropped them off, and Ted Nugent opened up, so I dropped off those pictures too. And then, long story short, like two months later, she said, go to the newsstand now. I'm like, all right. 
and I went to the newsstand and it was like, you know, the Beatles were on the cover, I remember, and uh, it was the centerfold of Steven Tyler, the biggest picture in the book. And then there was a picture of Ted, full page of Ted Nugent, and then, then the ball just started rolling. Wow, awesome. And again, I this is what I hope people, you know what, I'm gonna, I gotta get your book where it's standing up a little bit here. Um, this is the stuff that I definitely want the audience to understand and even people at Racing for Recovery. A couple times you've talked about this, you constantly have taken an opportunity and made it work. The camera in exchange for cash, you know, going down to circus. I, and I, I have that same type of mindset. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to your story. It's because it's like, I 100% get that. Um, so talk to, let's get into some of the stories from the book. You know, we were talking last night and I'm like, oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna know this stuff yet. I'm a huge Motley Crue fan. Got their shirt on right now. Let's talk about that initiation thing with Motley Crue or whatever. Tell that story. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I first met Motley Crue uh, in 1982 when I shot them for uh, Wii Magazine, and, and we became fast friends. So it was uh, their first national layout. It was with girls, a little risque, but it was all in fun, and, and that kind of we became fast friends just because of – you know, they wanted to get in the magazines. They knew I worked for Circus and all these other magazines. So, uh, and they were just like the perfect band for that era to, you know, the visuals uh, for a photographer to be in touch with, you know, it's like, it's just the perfect band. So I, I knew that. And then the next time I, I shot them was at the US Festival. I saw them in front of, you know, all these, you know, a few hundred thousand people you know, ruling the show, you know, it was 1983. And then the following, the following year, they were opening up for Ozzy. And at that point, um, I was Ozzy's photographer. So in 1981, I first shot Ozzy for Circus for the cover and became fast friends with them and, and developed this relationship. So I was on tour with Ozzy here and there, and they were the opening band. So they said, um, do you want to uh, come on the road with, you know, travel with us for a bit, you know, without Ozzy? Meanwhile, Ozzy was kind of uh, they were trying to, you know, she was trying to get off alcohol and and whatever else he was doing. So, you know, I was like, all right, I want to go on the fun bus. You know, <laughs> at that point, Motley was a mess. You know, right. they were they were a fun mess. Right. And I, you know, I was, you know, in my early twenties, and I was looking to have fun, and and so they they you know Nikki escorted me on the bus, and as I entered the bus, Tommy Lee was sitting in the driver's side in the driver's seat and he put his leg out and I couldn't like, so I couldn't pass. And I said, okay. Uh, and then Nikki started, Nikki grabbed me and he started, you know, biting my leg. And he said, draw blood. And I'm like, what? And he goes, draw blood. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know? So he just kept biting my leg until I bled. And I kind of, after a while, you know, Tommy's, you know, drinking Jack Daniels and I'm, but I was like, you know, let me have a little Jack. And I poured it on the wound, you know. I figured it would kill the infection or whatever. And I started drinking it, and it, it seemed like an hour, but it was probably 10 minutes of biting with me, like, not biting him back. And then I finally, you know, bit him and drew blood. And, and while this was going on, like, Vince walked by us, and he's shaking his head like, oh, come on, you know. And then Mick is in the back kind of like, I can't leave him alone, you know. And... uh and so that was it. So I found out later on that I wasn't the first victim. And 
you know, some people didn't take it too kindly, but yeah, I looked at it as like, all right, I'm on the bus. And then I got a lot of great images on that, on that little uh, stint, uh, yeah. maybe three or four, you know, shows. And, and that's actually, that's where me, I got my name Weiss guy. Cause me and Mick were watching the three stooges late at night. And you know, one of the, I think it was Mo goes, Hey, Weiss guy. So then he, he kind of started doing it to me. And, and then when I came back, it was the magazine called Faces. And then mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the title, I had him put Mark Weiss Guy Weiss, and then it kind of stuck. Yeah. You know, it's, I didn't know that we held that story off until today, but I've, I've heard the biting stuff. You know, they, you know, Nikki did it to Eddie Van Halen. And yeah, he didn't like it. He no. didn't like it, yeah. right? It, uh, it's interesting. And in one of the other pictures I have at, at the house is the uh, – is the one of Ozzy where he's opening the Bark at the Moon tour and he's coming down the stairs mm-hmm. and his arms are up. And that's the first time I saw Ozzy and it's the first time I saw Motley. But the only thing I remember from that night was Ozzy coming down like that. And I was taking a variety of chemicals and it was lights out after that. And this is, again, why I'm, I'm talking like this because it's another example to me of, you know, when you get off of drugs and you stay the course of what you're passionate about, these types of things become normal. And I I had the opportunity to take my son to meet Motley Crue on the um, the farewell tour a couple years ago. And I'm I'm talking to Nikki about this story about the first time I saw him and I don't really remember much. And here I am back now and I'm sober and everything and got racing for recovery and telling him the story. He just looked at me and he's like, no shit. And it, talking to you on a friendship level and now doing this podcast, it's just another reminder to me of like this pursuing of what you want to do and what it eventually leads to. So I I don't know. I mean, I can sit and ask you story after story about this, but um, is there anything you want to talk about that can lead me to ask you more questions? Because I'm just going to sit and grill you on a bunch of stuff. I just want to say, you know, thanks for inviting me. I mean, I was, you know, came here to do a job. Yeah. Um, but it didn't even seem like a job, you know, yeah. just meeting these people and M- Mikel and myself, uh, you know, just sitting in on your groups yeah. and and listening and talking and conversing and, and talking to the, getting their stories. Yeah. For what you did is just amazing. Uh, it's uh, it's not a rehab place. It's just a it's just like a, I, I call it like a camp and uh, and people would probably wouldn't mind spending the rest of their lives here yeah. uh, but they know that they have to move on this is just like a another step to to get out into the real world and it's preparing them all and it's just pretty amazing i appreciate that Let, well now that we're talking about this a little bit is there you've been here for a few days you've met some pretty awesome people is there anything that has really struck out to you that you've heard anybody say or anything that racing for recovery is doing that may seem different than the norm and the drug and alcohol recovery field. Yeah, uh, I'm not too familiar with really what happens. I mean, to me and to maybe a lot of people's minds is is like, you know, these people that really don't have a chance. And, and you know, I mean, I'm not going to say that you have the luxury of not getting them off the drugs, but you have the luxury of seeing them as people Yep. and making them in another spot. So, uh, I mean, there was, you know, there's great organizations that get them to the level where they need you to be that 
they don't have the they don't have the um, the structure and the compassion. So that's what this place has all around is compassion, and and compassion. I don't think in the when their people are detoxing and getting off like you need patience. Mm. I mean here you, I feel like they're at a level where they're they, they're ready to go they're ready to contribute to society and find their way and that's what i've seen like all these little kind of silly projects that aren't really silly after you hear them talk about it when i walked in the other day to the um and they were building the spaghetti and the marshmallow and i walked into that i was like what is this going on everyone's having fun and laughing and how is this helping you know because i didn't hear the introduction to it and then after I sat and watched and took pictures and some video. Uh, people were telling their stories and how they worked together and then how the pressure uh, when they did the three minute warning, uh, how all that uh, kind of, you know, they were like working as a team and, and you really saw people. And what I'm very impressed about is how articulate everyone is and everybody. I mean, you know, people, I mean, I'm not that articulate, you know, or it took me a while to, you know, find myself, but these people are are very articulate, and that's what it takes to be successful: is to be articulate and express yourself. And if that if that's all that this place does is to help express yourself, that's going to help them in the in the work in the work uh, field. Well, it, God, it's refreshing to hear you say that, and I know that's what we do. To me, so many times people think that recovery is you go to a facility and you detox for 30 days and everything's okay. Well, no, it's not. People are battling some serious traumatic issues that they're using drugs to cope with. And for us, once somebody is detox, and we're thankful we have medical facilities around here that does that first part, then when they come here, this to me is all about showing people how to live, not just not use drugs and be miserable. Let's show you how to live. And yesterday, that was once again on full-on display. We did the project, but then we had the Racing for Recovery band, which is oh, you know yeah. opening up for the uh, Van Halen tribute band jump that we're having out here tomorrow night. But uh, you know, when you were you know taking the first band photos yesterday, mm -hmm. I really started thinking. I mean, some of these people were coming in here, you know, with trash bags with their life in it. That's it. But there is so much talent that comes in here that they don't think is of value. They don't think they'll ever be able to use it. And yesterday, having them doing band practice and then doing those photos with you, you just see their, the smiles on their faces and they're starting to feel like a human being again. And that's what we want because when people feel good, they're better apt to do good. And that's what Racing for Recovery is all about. So you're, you are helping us make some dreams come true around here and it's it's awesome well when uh you know i was watching them get together i'm like you know it's like the first time they really got together and like the drums didn't you can even hear them and i'm and then i was like they have a show in like two days they're gonna pull this together <laughs> yeah. and uh and we'll see what happens i think they do because i just talked to the, the the ringleader and i said who's going to be like getting him on stage? He goes, Oh, we'll all work out. You know, <laughs> they'll be on the side of the stage and we'll get them, you know, cause once it's showtime, I mean, even bands like Motley Crue and Poison, they need people to say, all right, you're up. They don't, they're not going to have anyone on, on, uh, 
or themselves, you know. So uh, they seemed pretty confident about that. But I remember this one kid was uh, sitting at, you know, on this on the corner, watching, and uh, Mikkel went up to him uh, and yeah. said, uh, "Do you play?" And he goes, "Oh no, I can't do that." And she goes, "What do you mean you can't do that?" He goes, "Do you want to?" He goes, "Yeah, I want to." And he goes, "Well." I I just learned how to play guitar, but I know some chords. If you want me to, I'll show you some chords. He goes, he goes, okay, we'll do that sometime. I'm like, what do you mean sometime? He goes, I'm leaving tomorrow. He goes, you want to do it? Well, let's do it now. So, yeah. you know, someone is wants to help, you take it now. And, and this kid knows some chords already. Next time I come here, maybe he'll know a song and he'll be in the, the band, you know? Yeah. That's so. compassion, right? That's the compassion we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, when they came in here, they don't they don't have money to buy guitars and stuff. So Racing for Recovery, you know, buys that stuff so people can use it. You know, on break between educational groups, they'll just sit out in the hallway and and play, and it's entertaining for everybody else. And again, I, I talked about this earlier, the talent that people have, not just artistically with music, but the brain power that people have. It's extraordinary, and I want society to see that and not look at people who are unfortunately addicted to drugs as a you know a waste of time. They're not. They just have to be, you know, as Doc McGee said about Motley Crue, you got to clean them up a little bit and take it around the world, and that's exactly what we're doing here. It's it's awesome. Um, you want to talk a little bit about some of the the nutrients you've had around here with the shake or any of the food oh, that yeah. Dean's I, made? Oh yeah, I was just gonna say I um. <laughs> As soon as you came in here, you gave me one of these guys, and uh, I'm gonna have a little sip now. <laughs> I just thought it was like a banana mango smoothie or something, but next thing you know it, there's onions in it or vegetables and all sorts of stuff. I'm like, I'm I'm not much of a breakfast person. I don't, I just, I know I need to have something in my body to make me feel good for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, make my brain function mm -hmm. so if there's something s quick and smooth like this and it tastes good you go for it I went in there to ask for one this morning and took a few pictures of the the, the main chef and uh, you know I take my phone and I just interview people because it's not I mean I have a big video camera too but I feel like the phone is just very like you know you're not even talking to any you're talking to me and uh, I talked to a few people around here and I just said, you know, what do you, what, what bring, what brings you here? And he told me a story, and he told me he's, it was beautiful, you know, yeah. what he said. And then I went out to the to the gym, and someone was getting a haircut, and uh, I asked him the same question. And in his case, it was a happy accident. He was, he thought it was calling another somewhere else, and he ended up. You actually answered the phone, and he, he came here, and he's like, you know, he was just. He loves it. It's good so, stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I think the, I think the word needs to get out, and and I I wish there was a place in New Jersey where I live because I would send a dozen people there. I mean, sadly, I just lost my one of my friends' yeah. uh, uh, son who was 26, and I I didn't have any idea. I knew he was having some trouble, but I didn't know how bad it was, and. Uh, you know, sadly, this weekend, I believe she's uh, putting him to rest. And, uh, you know, you know, we it's don't want to lose sons and daughters and yeah. family members. 
Yeah. And if there's, I have a feeling that if this was around and he was part of it, because he was a creative person, uh, he would, uh, he would not, he'd still be here. Yeah, that. Uh, and you can't be everywhere, but you know, you just gotta let them know that you're here. We're here. And it, it, you know, if I don't know how this whole organization works, if people can, you know, they can be housed or the, you know, they can. I don't know, but you know, it'd be nice to have one on the West Coast and the East Coast. But you're the you're the you can't clone you. You know, it's like it's you're the what I've learned that you are racing for recovery. You know, you have great people working for you, but you, I feel you need to be there now. If if you if you ever found another person that you felt had the same way of you, and I'd say start it up wherever they live, and 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 bring your knowledge and your training to them and your philosophy to help whatever community someone you find so someday we'll be there in the meantime like we'll take anybody from anywhere our actual lodging program and we house about a hundred people currently right now it started from a guy from arizona he heard about us and called and said hey i love what you guys are doing can I come out there? And I was like, yeah, man, come on out. And we figured out how to take care of him with housing. And it just built from there, you know, but we've, there's been people from, you know, New Jersey, we've had a couple, you know, different parts of the United States. We haven't anybody come from out of the country yet, but I have, I, you know, we talked about this, Mark, I feel like that racing for recoveries been playing the bars for quite a while and we're about to step into the arenas and really get this going and i can see this having multiple locations someday and doing all kinds of stuff because people need it i do believe your your friend's son would have been alive we have a couple of those that we lost prior to having the building out here and if we had this building i know some couple local people that would still be here they people just need a chance that's what this is. They just need a chance to heal and then find their stride and get some support in that stride to letting them be all they can be. And I, I just love watching people get better around here. It's awesome. You want to do an Aerosmith story? Want to talk about your relationship with those guys over the years? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there were, again, because of my first picture, I loved my first one of my first albums was Toys in the Attic when I was in you know grammar school pretty much and uh, when I, once I got the picture in the magazine you know Steven saw it and liked it and and Lieber Krebs they you know yeah. I knocked on their door and they took me in and said you know they had all these other bands that they were managing and it was kind of like my office uh, you know I made the phone calls and they they just took me in uh and Aerosmith at that point in 81 82 that's when they kind of Joe left the band and they were really on the dark days and Joe went his way and Aerosmith teamed up with Jimmy Crespo and yeah. Rick Dufay and and so it was a new band and I was in there documenting and taking pictures and I became close with Steven and at the same time, I was getting close with Joe because he was doing some solo work and I was working with him too. At that point, I was like the Circus Magazine staff photographer. So I had a little clout to myself. So they wanted to work with me as much as I wanted to work with them. 
And uh, so we've developed a relationship on both sides. And in, in 1980, so in 1984, they got back together, was back in the saddle tour. And on that tour, uh, I shot a few shows and, and then there was a one show uh, that I wanted to uh, photograph. And uh, this is when Tim Collins was the manager, just became the manager and I wanted to shoot. And I was told by his office that I, I couldn't shoot. And I was like, well, I'm gonna be there with the Scorpions. Uh, you know, I'm gonna be there anyway. I just wanna you know, shoot, shoot a couple songs or the whole show and say hi to the guys. And they just kinda, they, they didn't get back to me. So I um, didn't know what was going on. So then when I got there, uh, I saw Steven and uh or i saw the manager and i asked him uh you know can i get a photo pass to shoot the show and he didn't say yes he didn't say no so i was like all right that's weird and so i saw steven he said hey mark hey come on back i said I said i'm trying to get take photos of you guys and i'm not getting any response you know mm -hmm. i need a photo pass and i would like to shoot the whole show i mean steven used to drag me on stage and take pictures on stage like in front of all these people like he didn't care to do whatever you want and I said, uh, he, I said, here, he gave me his laminate. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes, you do whatever you want, Mark. I said, all right, cool. You know, meanwhile, I see Tim in the corner watching me, you know, like looking at me like, you know, what are you doing, you know? And, uh, and then I took a few pictures of Steven. Like the last photo I shot of Steven was in the book. It's him in the blue outfit. Yeah. And that's like right before I went in the photo pit. And I go in the photo pit. Next thing you know, like three guys drag me out of there. He goes, I go, what's going on? And he goes, he goes, you can't shoot the band. He's like, I said, I couldn't say anything. I was like, oh, I don't know what the hell's going on. And uh, they basically kept me away from the band. You know, I couldn't go back there to see, you know, tell Steven or any of the guys. And, and just for the next few years, uh, I wrote a letter to him saying, what's happening and then what I found out later on through I think Doc McGee because Skid Row was opening up for them and I wanted it was New Year's Eve and I wanted to see the show and uh, he's like uh, Mark he's like you can come to the show but do not even talk to Steven don't even look in his look his way and all this um, and from what I found out over this is year like three yeah. or four years going by uh, after me trying to get in, and I just let it go. And he wanted just to get rid of all the people that was with him during their dark days, like assuming that I was the, you know, like he even said that like I gave drugs to the band and uh, it was the other way around, you know? Right. I, mean, I was some kid, broke kid. It's like, you know, Steven puts a line in front of you, you're gonna, you know, I was a party guy. Yeah, I was never abusive to it. I was wasn't an addictive person. So luckily, I survived the '80s. I mean, you know, I haven't done any of that for decades. Right. But um, at the time, it was fun. It was, you know, uh, but that was so that stopped me from shooting the band until they oh. fired him like ten years later, and wow. then I started working with them again. Wow. So. Yeah. I hope that I, I met Steven and Joe briefly out in Vegas, the quick thing or whatever. But uh, I remember I, I took um, the first time I met him, 
I told him who I was, told him about racing for recovery. And then I said I was coming back because I was finishing our, our third book, Choices and Consequences. So I took the picture when I first met him, put it in the book, and then went back to show him the book with their picture in it. And Stephen looks at the book and he goes, Choices and Consequences. He goes, well, well, Todd, I made a choice to get in a rock band 50 years ago and the consequences, I get to meet you again tonight. I mean, it's that wit that he has yeah. that just, yeah. and it was- Yeah, he's he was, a special guy. Yeah. You know, and Joe was just Joe, you know. I don't yeah. know him the way you do, but hopefully someday I will. Um, how about some Guns N' Roses stuff? And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I was explaining to you why I have certain pictures in alignment the way I do. And, again, going back to the Motley Crue connection, the pictures that I have from your book are when they first were on tour with Motley Crue, right? And that from Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to talk about some Guns Guns and Roses stuff? Uh, I don't have too many stories. Just like the first time I shot them, you know, they had their own photographer, so they really didn't want me to shoot them. But their publicist, who was the same publicist for Motley Crue, said, you know, you really should shoot with Mark. You know, he can get you into a lot of magazines, and I think you guys will hit it off. And, and you know, you need to reach outside of this one photographer that you were working with. And uh, so they trusted her and said, okay, we'll, we'll do a quick photo shoot. And this is before the record even came out. So they were so sure of themselves. They, they, they knew they had this uh, epic record and attitude. They just didn't, you know, give a crap. Uh, but she put her foot, you know, down and, and let me do this shoot. So that was the shoot where Axel's hair was like really high. And it was 1980s, beginning of 1986, I think. And... Uh, and then they quickly took their, their hairspray out and kind of changed the fashion of every rock band, really, because everyone got down and dirty after that. Yeah. Like, you know, taking all the glam. 1985, 1986, rock bands were at their glammiest. You know, the spandex, I mean, Theater of Pain with Twist, with uh, Motley, uh, Twisted Sister with Come Out and Play, and uh, Poison, obviously, were the probably the ones that started it. Uh, 1985, 84, uh, but 1987, they took their hair down and they were opening up for uh, Motley Crue. And I was there down in Florida shooting Motley Crue and I get there and I saw Stephen Adler in the hall and I didn't even know Guns N' Roses was opening up. And I said, oh wow, you know, it, it, can you ask the guys if we can do a photo shoot before the show or after the show? And he's like, uh, yeah, sure, I'll ask him, man. So uh, after the show, Stephen goes, uh, the guns show, uh, hey, come on back. Axel said it's cool. Yeah, I talked to him. I told him, you know, I remember him. We shot with him. He's a cool dude. And, and so I just, they were in towel. Axel was in a towel. He had his cowboy boots on. <laughs> And uh, that's how we got this cover shot. Yeah, you know? that's awesome. And he, he gave me—he's giving me the finger there, and in the in the first photo shoot, he gave me the finger too. And you know, because he's kind of—I don't know if that means—I think it means he likes you. He doesn't want to—he <laughs> doesn't want to tell you. Right. You know, so I, that one just means so much. You know, it's—it's uh, it's just a moment that I caught, and I was—I just happened to pass Stephen. And, you know, going to do a job with Motley Crue, and then he was there, and then I took these amazing photos, and then from that, we did a bunch of other stuff. When they came to New York, they came to CBGB's to do a signing, and 
and we hung out and they came to my studio in New York. So, I mean, I did a handful of photo shoots with them, became close. And, and then in 1988, I was in on the West Coast. I'm from Jersey, the East Coast. So whenever I went there, I'd just see who was around. So I called Brent out, the publicist. I said, what's the guns guys doing, you know? Uh, he goes, oh, they're home on a break. I said, well, do they want to do something casual or, you know, let's do some photos, you know? And Axel had a beard at the time and they weren't, they really weren't doing anything, but she ran up by the guys and they agreed to do this photo shoot at the Sunset Grill, uh, yeah. you know, the hot dog place that everyone went to. And everyone came except Axel and we waited and waited. So I did individuals of all the other guys and waited for Axel. And for whatever reason, Axel didn't come, but he, we made arrangements for him to come the next day. So I have pictures of all of them at the sunset. No group photos, but, um, and, and, and then my most classic photo that's in the book, it opens it up, is him on the cell phone. That giant cell yeah. phone looks like a, a yeah. jam box, yeah, practically. It's the, it's the first cell phone that I actually, he's like, hey, Mark, check it out. You want to make a call? You know? Yeah. So, wow. So that was fun. Old school. Tell me about Kevin Debro, Quiet Riot days. Yeah, Kevin Debro and Quiet Riot, that, that was the first band that really helped a lot of bands get on the map. Uh, Quiet Riot, you know, with Bang Your Head, it was the first band, metal band, to go to number one, knocking out Michael Jackson and the yeah. police. And uh, because of that, all the the record companies went on like this, you know, shopping spree for those kind of bands. And I became fast friends with them after I saw them at the US Festival for the first time, I was blown away. And then four or five months later, they opened up for Iron Maiden at Madison Square Garden. And uh, they were just starting to take off. And I wanted to do a photo shoot, so we arranged a photo shoot. And it ended up being the, the single sleeve for Bang Your Head. And uh, since then, we've just been friends. And he's got my wedding and, and just really a great guy and, and not not much not really appreciated the way yeah. he should have been you know because kevin was kevin uh whether he was selling sh you know shoes in a shoe store or yeah. being a rock star he would have had the same sarcastic uh you know or talk to me in a, in a way where you disrespected me i'm gonna just get you back even more he was like a fighter and stood up for himself and uh it kind of backfired on him because of in this business you have to be careful what you say really you know and be smart about it but i gave him credit for speaking up because i was like kind of a shy guy and here's this flamboyant guy that just spoke, spoke his mind if someone like you know said something bad about him he would like put him in their place mm. anyway we became friends and uh and sadly he lost his life at a young age of you know cocaine yeah um uh, again, it was I. From what I've learned, that he was off it, and uh, and then it, it came across. You know, it came across his. Uh, you know, he, he came across it somehow. A fan gave it to him, and and he pretty much where he left off did the same amount, and it just it didn't. His body couldn't handle it. That's sad. So it's tragic. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had uh, he was they were on a comeback. They had the, the you know the band was playing again, and he was look he was looking good. Last time I saw him was that not too long, you know, maybe a few months before he passed. When you got a book out, 
about him as well, yeah. right? Yeah, so I just felt that um, uh, Mikel and I started a publishing company called Mima Publishing. MI for Mikel and MA for Mark, so it's Mima. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to, uh, you know, do our own because uh, after you know doing this book, I just wanted control over uh, my next books to come and even other artists I possibly could help. And and I just got this call from this girl named Missy Whitney, who was the fan club president, and wanted to use one of my images for the cover. She was going to do an ebook, and uh, I was like, uh, send me the manuscript I'd like to see it and so she sent it to me I fell in love with the, with this side of Kevin that no one's really seen uh, from this young girl at the time who ended up being the fan club president even during Metal Health and the Dubrow and Metal Health years uh, for that album and I just read it and I was like you know what this story needs to be told and it tells a different side of him not the druggy side just yeah. the side because Kevin had respect for this girl that didn't want her involved. She was helping him and didn't want him her to be part of that scene. So she he kept her away from the parties and everything else. And so she was just this young 16 when she met him, your old fan that ended up helping the band, uh, you know, reach success through through the fans. Wow. And it's just the story. and. And as I read it, uh, I decided to make it a hardcover. We even put gold foil on it, and uh, you know, gold imprint on the on the words on the cover, and just turned it into a really nice hardcover book that is pretty much a passion project. Rudy Sarza, the bass mm-hmm. player, did the forward, and then we, when it was kind of done, I had a kind of like a prototype of it, and I was in L.A. Um, and I met with Kevin's mom, and I wanted to show her you know get her blessings or whatever you know and she was very emotional of course mm-hmm. she misses her son and i just said you you know you know do you mind us talking to you about about him and and she ended up doing the the just had a conversation we did the afterward you know and uh she just wrote some things about him and and it was pretty cool very cool how do you, i watched the uh the documentary on them, well, it was mainly about uh, Randy. But one of the things I wondered is how Kevin felt about losing him. Not not losing him, but, you know, he went on, joined Ozzy, and so did Rudy. You know, I mean, I wonder if that, how that affected Kevin. I mean, they made it afterwards, of course, but still, that I wonder how, well, I'll use traumatic or what that loss did for him. You know, I don't know if he felt a part of his, of Randy's eventual success. Did he ever talk about that? Well, from what I've, because I just did a um, kind of a little mini doc. It's just out there. It's not even out there yet. And it was uh, to promote the book. It was a virtual book release, and we we interviewed a bunch of artists, and Rudy being one, and, mm-hmm. and his mother, and and a few others, and talking about that time and from what i came out of talking to all these people uh was that randy left uh he joined ozzy and randy was able to explore his classical roots more ozzy gave him a little more freedom Mm -hmm. where kevin had this rock band that he you know kevin was you know it didn't give rudy a, a chance to show what he maybe what he wanted to portray Mm -hmm. so 
it really was a good move to for Randy to explore his musical, you know, what he wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that he might have gone back uh, after he did a couple albums with Ozzy and maybe, but then who knows if it would have been right because mm -hmm. that kind of classical, uh, who knows if it would have been right for Quiet Riot. So Quiet Riot became Quiet Riot because of the four members that, was in it with Carlos yeah. replacing. Yeah. I don't even call it replacing, just the new person in the band. Uh, and uh, everything has its time and place, and you never know. And, and we lose some. Unfortunately, this is a, the most stupidest thing that they could have done. And, you know, yeah. whatever was involved in whatever happened, whether I. You know, with this plane crash into the bus. I mean, how horrible. I mean, yeah. who could you can't even phantom something like that. Right. Uh, so for Kevin to to move on, maybe he just needed to just it helped him put it put it behind him. Yeah. Well, we got uh, we got time for one more, and I I love this story you've talked about uh, Sebastian Bach singing at your wedding, which led to meeting John Bon Jovi's parents, and then how Skid Row came together. Talk, talk about that one. That's a good story. Well, I, I met, I shot Madame X. Madame X was a band who was managed by Don Orden, which was Sharon Osborne, mm -hmm. Sharon's dad. Mm -hmm. He had Jet Records, and they hired me to do a photo shoot to, for publicity in 1985. Uh, Brett was the singer. He had half white hair and, and half black, you know, and they were quite outrageous looking. And... So that was that. In 1985, didn't the band didn't break up, but they got they ended up in Texas, and I got a call from I believe it was Maxine saying that we have a new singer, we want to fly you out and shoot him. And I hear Sebastian, his name is Sebastian Bach. He's I hear him in the background, you know. Let me talk to Mark. Hey, so he's like, you know, he's got him on the phone. He's like, hey man, I can't wait to meet you. I see all your pictures and. And so I went down there, we did a photo shoot, and that's how I met them. Six months later, I was getting married, and I told my uh, secretary who was doing all my, you know, I said, you know what? And I was inviting whoever was in town, you know, was there, you know, like little Steven was there, the Twisted Sister guys. And uh, I said, why don't you invite, uh, and Kevin was there too, and I wanted you to invite, uh, those guys that I shot you know we became friends but you know we weren't super close I'm like they're never gonna come they didn't have any money and and they were in Detroit at that point I believe and they would have to drive and uh, I've heard that they were kind of like it wasn't going great with Sebastian so I said just invite them so they ended up coming all of them and they just were partying and hanging out and I had a, a band that took over my friend Actually, the guys in uh, uh, Madame X went on stage with Kevin Dubrow, and then Zach Wild was yeah. there. Zach was at that point was in Ozzy. I I introduced uh, with my friend Dave Fell to Ozzy like mm -hmm. months before that, like maybe four or five months before. So he was there, and they went up on stage, and Sebastian came on. And after they came on, he went over, someone introduced him to John Bon Jovi's parents, started singing at the table, you know, just ridiculously, you know, singing his operatic voice because he's got a really high voice. Uh, 
And between Dayfeld, my best man, uh, who knew the Skid Row guys, he knew Snake from coming to my photo shoots with John, and and John's parents saying, "Hey, you should check out this kid," you know, and tell Snake about about this kid was at Mark's wedding, and then Dayfeld called up Snake and said, "You know, send me a tape," and they exchanged tapes, and next thing you know, it they're flying him down, and we're hanging out, and and next thing you know, we're getting in fights and. Uh, with other people, you know, getting kicked out. Sebastian, get, first day, Sebastian got kicked out of the club, you know, and then, uh, and then that was it, really. I can't. We cannot stop without talking about Van Halen. I can't even believe I didn't bring this up earlier, but you, you were around Van Halen, and I like to call it the good old days. I mean, shot him at the US Festival, the whole deal. Any, anything in particular? That, that uh, sticks out with the Van Halen guys? Uh, they were just like the ultimate rock and roll band yeah. for the time. They were the ones that, that set the pace for everyone else. I was fortunate enough to shoot them in 79 when they weren't in arena status yet, but they were selling out the, the theaters. And it's the first time I met Eddie was backstage. I was just starting to work for Circus Magazine. It was an assignment. I came back with my circus magazine. I went backstage and showed him, told him who I was, and said, "Can I take some pictures of you guys?" And before you go on, and Michael said, "Yeah, sure, just to, you know, go for it." So I took a photo of him, and then I asked Eddie, and he just smiled. So I took that as a yes, and that's that's the full page of my book. Yeah. And uh, and then from there on, uh, it was a centerfold of the three of them together: Michael, Eddie, and David. And that was, uh, they loved, everyone loved that photo. And then they just, Van Halen was in every issue. So my name was just starting to appear all the time. So that was really in the beginning of my career. And then there's the, the Invasion Tour the next year. And I got an assignment. I got more access than I, than I did an assignment for Us Magazine to do like a human interest story on them. So it gave me even more access to yeah. spend a few days behind the scenes that, you know, not even a, a regular rock photographer would be able to get so they wanted to, they were going mainstream and I was working for this you know us magazine was like people and I was happening I I was working for them doing all sorts of photo you know different photos and that got me really close with them and then they started hiring me and and even up to Sammy when yeah. Sammy joined the band I did a couple photo shoots for them and then when Monster Rock tour came i was the photographer that did the pictures for the tour book metallica was on that one yeah, yeah. metallica well, docking and you gotta do uh i was at this show but you did the uh, lost weekend even thinking that the lost weekend with van halen and from what i hear that was a lost weekend but that was at cobo hall in detroit i was sitting up in the nosebleeds yeah. at that while you're back there doing your thing but that that was an iconic event you know yeah, I got hired from MTV. I was also MTV's photographer. And whenever they did a special contest, like they had the, the pink houses for John Cougar or um, uh, they had a well, Bon Jovi bon yeah. giveaway house. I was yeah. at all of them the, the New Year's Eve. So they had when they had that, uh, they sent me out to Detroit. But they had me take the two winners to meet them on the side of the turnpike in a limo and pick them up and then we blindfolded them. They didn't know they were going. 
I, you know. Wow. I didn't even know where we were going. They didn't even tell me. Yeah. And uh, I ended up on the plane with just the three of us, really, a small plane. And then we, we went there, and I kind of, like, babysat him a little bit and took pictures, and then and all hell broke loose. <laughs> right. Awesome. Is there, uh, is there anything you want to ask me before we wrap up? I mean, you know, I've been asking you a ton of stuff. Anything, anything I can answer for you? Uh, no, I just, uh, just very feels very really comfortable being around here and and just like the people that come here like yeah. I don't want to leave yeah man. you know and yeah. uh and you know you, you've been nice enough to let me stay at your house which yeah. is nice and get to know you more and try to spread the word um I've had some uh my my brother had mental illness I know this is mm-hmm. not a mental illness facility but I, I feel alcohol and drugs is, is there's something not going on in your head. Yep. So I, I, everybody has someone in their family that has been affected by their mental illness or drug addiction or, you know, alcohol abuse. Uh, and any place that can help them get to where they need to be has my support. Yep. And if I can help, with people that I know, um, and especially in the music business, where you know there's been a lot lost, uh, you can imagine how many people there are that 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 we don't even hear about. Yeah, that's um, we met for a variety of reasons, and I, you know, I'm licensed to do clinical mental health with, with people, and I, I've always since I started doing this, I'm like, man, someday it'd be cool to work with. Um, a musician that I've admired their talent that I knew was having some trouble. I I want to be that guy, kind of like the guy from Some Kind of Monster with Metallica. I'm like, that. I want to do that. Yeah, someday. you'd be perfect for that. I'd love it. Yeah. So you know, I and, mean, you know, we got to get the word out, and yep. maybe I know some friends that know some friends that might need some help. Yeah. All good, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking to you like this, and we'll do it again, brother. Okay, everybody, that's uh, iconic photographer Mark Weiss. Check out his book, see his stuff, and um, check out more podcasts of Ignite Euphoria. And if you or a loved one is battling addiction, mental health issues, whatever, give Racing for Recovery a call, 419-824-8462. Until next time, take it easy.